are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Our gospel episode this evening comes from a hugely tense moment in the life of a budding faith community. At the center, we have a leader, Jesus of Nazareth, carpenter by trade, now commanding the title of rabbi, teacher with a capital T, sometimes with reverence, sometimes with condescension. In the immediate circle around him, we have his followers. Jesus has changed each and every one of their lives in profound ways. He has touched their spirits, taken them on unimaginable adventures of mind and motion. In the process, he's rewritten their ideas of what God might really be like, where the story of the world might be leading, and what their own places in that story might be. Now, they are a mixed bag, these disciples. A good clutch of them, maybe seven out of twelve, are fishermen, and more than that in ways we will never know. Simon Peter, for instance, is a zealot, meaning a rebel against Roman occupation, very possibly paramilitant. By contrast, before joining the group, our narrator, Matthew, was a tax collector, a wealthy, educated scab for the Roman occupation. And there are others by this point. There are the women, too. Joanna, Susanna, Salome, Mary Magdalene, a whole bunch of other Marys. (laughs) As a group, they vary hugely in family background, social status and access, political leanings, life experience, money, outlook, personality, everything. But what they have in common is this that in response to the stirring they felt inside concerning this man, each of them has changed or dropped everything to get on the bandwagon and make themselves apprentice to his ministry. These are the people who didn't go on to study Torah after primary school. They went home to tend house or mend nets and split catch or carry on some other family business until now until this teacher rolled through town and said, you, you are exactly what I'm looking for. So they're bonded to him in a very special way. He's not just a rabbi, he's their rabbi. And they are not yet the early church. Pentecost is ahead, as yet completely unimaginable to these people. Right now, They are simply, beautifully, souls devoted to a revelation unspooling before their eyes through the humanity and divinity of this impossible, present person, their teacher and their friend. Now in the scene we read today, these people are starting to hear their friend and teacher saying some drastic scary things about where his ministry is leading. I'm sure at least some of us here tonight can empathize just a little 
with some of the feelings that must have been bubbling under the surface. I think we can imagine just a little what it must have felt like for the disciples to hear Jesus say that he was leaving. Thankfully, our teacher is not going anywhere far. He's simply retiring from the leadership of this church. (laughs) The disciples were facing something infinitely more ominous. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, sometimes when I read scripture, I read Jesus' lines on first blush, sometimes a bit too square. It's as though Jesus' godness supersedes his humanness in my mind, such that the words come out of his mouth steady, confident, thoughts fully formed every time. Sometimes I forget to read for things like humor or subtext, hesitation, emotion. But this scene cannot be read without attention to the porridge-thick atmosphere of emotions playing out in every corner. How did Jesus, in his 30s, me-ish, go about explaining what was coming to these people that he loved, his friends and traveling companions. I do not know. I don't imagine it came easy. I sort of hope it didn't. I hope it took him a few tries. I imagine that this latest time the space got pretty quiet, mostly quiet. More and more now there are side rumblings And Peter, well, is there any wonder about Peter's response? Peter, the man willing to try to walk on water with Jesus, the one who came to this adventure ready to take up physical arms against injustice. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter took him aside. Aside from what? Was this during the day or the evening? Were they inside, outside, eating, traveling, working? Who else was around? There are so many ways to imagine the scene, but that gesture retains its significance, its intimacy. The suggestion of lowered voices, faces close to one another. Maybe Peter grips Jesus' arm a little. Do you understand, Rabbi? We will lay down our bodies for you to protect the Messiah and his coming kingdom from whatever the authorities may try to do. How moving must this have been to Jesus? How frustrating and moving and heartbreaking must this have been to Peter's friend, the maker-made man, who knew that Peter meant it, and perhaps also knew that Peter would bodily intervene in his defense at Gethsemane, and later deny ever having known him. 
I know that you know sometimes when you experience some intense but sensitive emotion you don't really want to show, like fear or sadness or longing. You know how sometimes you can almost substitute it. Classic example, a mother is terrified when her kid gets lost at the grocery store so that when she finds him again, she snaps at him angrily at first. What were you thinking? Don't you ever do that to me again? And then she hugs him like she's going to squeeze the life out of him. That is a lot how I picture Jesus saying his next line. Peter says, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. First the snap, then the truth. Still defensively phrased, but clearer in its emotion, you are a stumbling block to me. Subtext. I don't want to leave you either. And this is where I imagine they embrace. Because how must Peter have looked? What must his eyes have looked like when his beloved Lord snapped Satan? Jesus has set a boundary with Peter, a hard one, but he would not leave his friend uncertain of his love. So I picture Jesus with his arms around Peter's neck and Peter's arms around the Lord's when Jesus says more softly and calmly now, perhaps still not without pain, you do not have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. Valid, precious, merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Deny your hunger for the power to control events. Deny what you think you know about how things are. Deny your sense of ownership over things. Take up your cross and follow me. He is speaking, I think, in part to Peter's attachment to the vision he has held up to now concerning what the promised kingdom will look like, what it will mean for him and those he loves, what his part in it will be. It will be so much better and so much harder, Peter, than you have imagined. But to give him credit for his willingness to lay himself down for his Lord because he is willing, even if his vision is flawed, Jesus affirms, whoever loses their life for me will find it. And Pentecost was on the way. And now here we are, still trying to understand what it means to live as servants and friends of Christ through the practice of this thing we call the church, this thing we love and do not understand. At St. Ben's, we have been extraordinarily blessed to be mentored in one pattern of an answer to that question, how to work out our discipleship and our salvation by our friend and teacher, Jamie Howison. 
As churches within the church, we are called to one universal work and purpose, but we're all going to have distinct gifts and cultures and localized vocations, and this place is no different. St. Ben's is something very unique and incredibly special to all of us, and it was brought into being by the grace of God through many people, but especially Jamie, and we are grateful. But Jamie is leaving. And now our gratitude to Jamie and our faithfulness to Christ who first loved us must drive us forward into becoming the us that comes next. And wow, has the lectionary stood us in good stead for the contemplative work that lies ahead of us on that road. You might as well call this passage from Romans the core brief on how to be the church, both inwardly and outwardly toward our communities. Now it's long, so I'm not going to rehearse it to you. But in closing, I would exhort each and every one of you, go home, sit down with this passage, and read it as Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina is a very old but still popular monastic approach to contemplative reading of scripture. It has four steps. Read the passage through very slowly, maybe out loud, ideally a few times. Meditate on the words. Meditate on the passage as God's living word for the present time and the present reader. Pray. Talk to God without agenda, trusting God to lead the conversation where it ought to go. Finally, contemplate. Contemplate with time. Take time in silence to simply be with God in stillness under the gaze of who you gaze upon. That might be the hard part, but it's worth it. After the Pentecost, after Peter's own death at the hands of the Roman government, Paul, previously Saul, writes to the Christians practicing in Rome to try to teach them how to be the church. Let's spend some time with that call. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.